Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today we'll be continuing our series, Transforming. We hope you enjoy. Well, this has been a great series. Uh, I loved your comments as we're growing and learning about the issue of transforming, becoming uh, what God wants us to be. You know, the truth be told, we don't want to be caterpillars forever, right? We want this metamorphosis to happen, and that's the word that Paul uses, and that's how we got into this series, this metamorphosis of us becoming what God has intended us to be. You know, when Jesus went around from town to town saying the kingdom of God is here, the kingdom of God is at hand, that was a message that related to that culture, and oftentimes modern Christians really don't know what that phrase means, and so we've dumped it off to the end times, we've dumped it off to the second coming of Christ, whatever that kingdom of God is. But Jesus knew what he was saying. He was saying that when a king comes to a city, the king sends out a messenger to the city that says, uh, repent, do or die. You become a part of me or I attack. And, and so what Jesus was saying is judgment is coming on the earth, judgment is coming to all of us, but there's a chance to surrender. <laughs> Uh, and become a part of the kingdom of God, right? And when you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, the kingdom of God moves in to your life. Wherever the king is, there is the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God is in your midst, Jesus says. So it's already happening. Yes, there's certain things that won't happen to the second coming of Christ or we die, but there's things that have already begun to happen. And one of those is not only that you're saved, forgiven, but that you are being saved, what the Bible calls transforming, metamorphosis, and it also calls sanctification. So the process has begun. God's rulership, his kingdom, is in your life. And it's not only in your life, the kingdom of God moving inward, but the kingdom of God is moving outward through you. When you share the truth of the love of Jesus Christ verbally or when you live it out in action, you are giving forth horizontally the kingdom of God. So it's moving in, ruling you, it's moving through you. Transform people, transforming our world. And this morning we want to take one final visit to this subject in 2 Peter chapter one. We began it last week and we're gonna continue this morning as we look at this passage. I'd like to read the entire passage that we're studying to you, but we'll only cover about three of, three of these verses. So we began last week in verse three where we read, his divine power has given us everything. Remember that word? He's not holding out on you. He's given you everything. So we're not victims, we're not helpless, we're not hopeless. He's given you everything for this transforming process that we need for God, a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through these promises, the word of God, um, you may participate in the divine nature. Remember that. That's transforming. You and I 
participating, and the word there is koinonia, with the divine nature. You don't become God, but you become God-like in the sense that you're enjoying the God life that God intended you to live. Not perfectly, not, uh, you know, don't go write a book about yourself, okay? But just this, this change has begun in your life, drinking of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now we come to our section this morning. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll stop there, but let me read to you the rest of the context so you get the picture. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Leo Tolstoy, the Russian writer, some of you may have read his two works, but he also was a, a passionate man about uh, seeing God's kingdom come. He converted to Christ as an adult, and he was passionate about this reform that God could bring to a human being and to bring to society. So he says this in one of his pamphlets. He says, in our world, everybody thinks of changing humanity and nobody thinks of changing himself. So we are gonna be the exception to the rule this morning and think about changing ourselves. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do pray as we study your word that you would speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here in our midst by your promise. And so, Lord, because you know our name, you know our address, you know everything about us, we pray that you would take your word and and apply it specifically and personally to our lives. And we invite you to do this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. So in this final session, Peter begins in complete Peter style. He says, for this very reason, make every effort. This is classic Peter. Peter saying, make every effort. He uses this word four times in this epistle alone. And it's, it's the Peter that you and I know, the guy that says, though everyone else denies you, I'll never deny you, I'm gonna make every effort. He says, uh, if, if this army's coming against us, I'm gonna pull out my sword and make every effort, I'm gonna defend you, Jesus. Uh, He sees Jesus walking on water and says, if that's you, bid me to come. And he makes the effort and he gets out of the boat. Peter's that guy that is saying to the coach, send me in, coach. And now he asks you to be that same person that's saying, send me in. This idea of you and I changing, make every effort. Now, this is hard for modern uh, Christians because uh, we often are told over and over again by people in my profession 
uh, that Jesus paid it all, Jesus did it all, you do nothing, and, and, and we have the idea that we're rocking in a hammock drinking Dr. Pepper to the rapture. And I'm here to tell you there's work to be done to roll up our sleeves and begin tinkering with us participating in the transformation and begin tinkering with what's out there to be done in this world. We're not helpless, we're not victims. The Holy Spirit has come to us. C.S. Lewis says that we are behind enemy lines, so to be sure that it's a broken world, and to be sure it's not gonna be perfect till Jesus comes again. But in the meantime, we're behind enemy lines and we've got contact with headquarters and there's work to be done inwardly and outwardly. So when we, we, we read words like this, make every effort to add to your faith, it kind of disturbs us because we ask ourselves, I thought it was sola fide, it was faith alone and how can I add to my faith? Well. Be assured, you cannot add to your faith. The literal Greek is add through your faith or add because of your faith. So your faith is, is untampered with. We're, we're not gonna mess with your faith. You are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ and you have put your faith in him. Now because that has happened, conversion, now he says, through your faith, make every effort. There's a similar passage in Philippians chapter two that kind of disturbs us when we read that. Paul says that uh, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yikes, what is that? What, what do you mean, work out my salvation? What he means is, Work out what God has worked in. He's talking about transforming. He's talking about sanctification. Come on, guys. He's given you this great salvation. Don't bottle it up. Work it out in your life. And then he gives the reason because he says, for, meaning causality, for it is God who is at work in you. And you see the paradox. Oh, I am supposed to work out because God is working in me. It's God who's at work in you. So if you have a desire to change, it's not you, it's God. If you come, become aware of something in your personality, your character that is, is either sinful or inadequate and needs to change, it's God. But don't bottle it up, work it out. It, it, we're either usually one side or the other. Martin Luther, the reformer of 500 years ago, he said that uh, Christians behave often like a drunken peasant. <laughs> you know, I, we're, we're offended all the time in our society today, so I mean no offense if you're a drunken peasant. <laughs> you know, I, I mean no offense. But uh, he says that we, we climb on this horse to ride the horse and we fall off into self-effort, into works. Like I'm gonna get better and better and God's gonna be so proud of me, it's all me. And then we get exhausted and say, I can't change myself, I, this is horrible. I can't work my way to heaven. And so we get a running start 
on that, to get on that horse again, and we fall off onto the other side. And the other side is passivity. The other side is, I can't do anything. It's all God, and I can't do anything. Uh, and then we realize, God wants me to respond, and we get a running start towards the horse again. So the great error of the church today, I believe, is automatism. Automatism is just a word that you might say refers to thinking it all automatically happens. I wake up, and just because I breathe air, I change. I eat, and just because I eat, God changes me. And I go to church, and just because I go to church, God changes me. Peter says, you make every effort. And the command is actually in the imperative mood. So it means it's command to you. It's not a command to the Holy Spirit. It's not a command to the Father. It's to us to take hold of what God has given us and begin to respond. I've shared with you the story of one of my sons uh, being asked by Jan to clean up their room when, oh, golly, I think he was five years old or something like that. And she says, okay, it's time to pick up all these toys, clean up the room. And he bows his head and says, dear Jesus, I pray that you would clean up my room. (laughs) And Jan says, look, he's answered your prayer. Two hands. (laughs) Now clean up your room. In your notes, you'll see four different lines of all the different verses in the New Testament. And this is not all of them, but just a few to show you that uh, making a moral, spiritual effort to respond to God is not some isolated idea. It's all throughout the New Testament. So Peter is just saying, come on, guys, let's, let's go with this thing. When I was playing football in my... 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th grade uh, years before everyone kept growing and I didn't. And, and hitting began to hurt more and more and more and uh, track looked a lot better. Um, I was second string defensive back and I was always looking at the coach saying, he's gonna call my name, he's gonna call my name. And usually when the score got to be high enough where we were winning, He'd say, Foreman. And I'd say, yes! And I'd run out of the field. And so that's what Peter's doing here. He's calling your name and say, come on, let's make every effort. Now, question has to be asked, why don't we often get excited about God working in our life? And I think I have the answer. Because we want him to change this part of us, but we don't want him monkeying around with all this other part. We want to control what he changes and what he doesn't change, right? And he doesn't seem to honor our request. (laughs) C.S. Lewis says this. He says, when I was a child, I often had a toothache. And I knew that if I went to my mother, remember she died when he was nine, so this is when he was young, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me get to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not till the pain became very bad. 
And the reason I did not do this is I did not doubt that she would give me an aspirin, but I knew that she would do something else. I knew that she would take me to the dentist the next morning. And because I didn't want to go to the dentist, I put up with the pain. I knew those dentists. I knew that they would start fiddling around with all sorts of other teeth, which, I had, not, which had not begun to ache yet. And our Lord is like the dentist. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of a particular sin. Well, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. This may be all you asked, but if you once call on him, he will give you the full treatment. So are you ready for the full treatment? She's ready. Anybody else? <laughs> you're, you're, you're ready? Is, is anybody ready for the full treatment to be? Okay, okay, I want to be sure. So let's dive in. Roll up our sleeves and dive in. So he says, for this very effort, add to your faith, or add literally through your faith, number one, goodness. One translation has it as moral excellence. It's the word virtue. This is probably the most cryptic word that you can imagine because it's not a word that we care about. I rarely hear someone describe a human being as, you know, they're really good. We know what a good cup of coffee tastes like. It tastes really, I know what a good knife is. It cuts really well. I know what a good horse is. It runs really fast or doesn't throw me off. But what is a good human? Here's a better question. What is a good you? What does you look like if you were consummately good? Like the best iteration of you. So Peter starts out with that, which is, seems so lofty. Add to the fact that you believe goodness to your life. Paul uses this word. It's the only other time this word occurs in the New Testament. In Philippians chapter 4, where he's talking about how we think. And he says there that... Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent, there's the word, or praiseworthy, think about such things. So maybe you've seen a good person. I've actually sometimes seen some amazing people that aren't Christians. And I just always feel like they have a head start on me because I start several laps behind <laughs> towards a, a good iteration of me. And some people were raised in, in an amazing family, amazing environment, amazing genetics, that they seem to start out pretty good. But we, regardless of where you started, that's what we're aiming for. Do you got it? So it's, I think it helps to not just say, well, I'm transforming. How are you transforming? Well, I don't know, but I'm transforming. 
So what we're aiming at is goodness. Best version of you. Excellent you. Virtuous you. Now, let me pause for a moment. In, in the ancient world and in scripture, like Romans chapter five, there's cases where there's a string of virtues that the writer lists. And, and it's, there was this uh, writing tool where they would say, out of this emerges this, out of this emerges this, out of this emerges this. And when scholars look at this list that will go through, it, it isn't obvious how one leads to the next. So let me have you look at the screen and show you what I'm talking about. So this is the idea that we're gonna aim at goodness. Really looks like a real stairway, doesn't it? You just climb that thing. So we're gonna start out with goodness, which leads to knowledge, which leads to self-control, perseverance, uh, godliness, brotherly love, and love. But it's not logical or obvious how each of these are connected to the next one. We can understand how God's love at the top is what we're aiming towards, but how does goodness lead to knowledge? So as I wrestled with this, every, a lot of scholars just say it's just random. He just picked seven different virtues and just threw them, threw them there on the pages. But as I wrestled with it, there is some logic to it but it strikes me in a different way. This may help you. If it doesn't, dismiss it. We'll go on together. But here's how I picture what's happening here. He slaps up goodness as this great, this, this idea of the best me, a good me, and then asks, how are we gonna get there? And then he gives us four pillars that lead to that, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, and godliness. So let me show you how each of those four things create a good you. Because those four things are necessary for excellent good you, virtuous you to happen. You with me so far? So the first one is knowledge. So he says, add to your goodness knowledge. How does knowledge create a good iteration of me. Ignorance is a way of never changing. You're ignorant of God, his love for you, his power, what he's done. You're ignorant of things about you that need to change. You're ignorant about how we relate to other people. It's knowledge that's going to cure that. And knowledge, the primary tool of knowledge is right here, the word of God. So I begin to grow in my knowledge. And the knowledge stretches me. Knowledge stretches me. Oftentimes we're attracted to things that we already know. We love this writer, because they write all these kind of fiction books. Or I love physics, or I love uh, um, English. And, and we, we keep reading about what we already know a lot, but what if we decided I'm gonna learn what I don't know, not what I do know, and begin to grow? I went through this 
uh, in a period of my time where Jan and I went to a seminar on couple communication. I, I didn't realize that I had developed some habits in my communication style that I had inherited from my parents. I watched them for 18 years and then I absorbed them all and now I was doing it in my marriage. And I went through this course and I thought, oh my gosh, it was like discovering I had a tail and I never had a tail. You know, I would go through a china shop and I'd hear all these crashes and I'd look around and, and I never saw my tail so I thought, who did this? So the way I would communicate would hurt people. And I went through this course, I thought, it was knowledge. It opened up my eyes to how I could change. Knowledge reveals not only the love of God, but it reveals the cracks in your life, in my life, the gaps, and makes us aware. So knowledge is kind of a lens that causes you to see things that you didn't see before. Isn't that wonderful? When I was in Nicaragua years ago, uh, I met this physician who was down there, um, uh, ophthalmologist, and uh, he would go down every year to Puerto Cavesas, the eastern part of Nicaragua, and uh, operate on people to remove their cataracts. And uh, we had a wonderful time visiting, me sharing my faith with him and me interviewing him. Why would he come? And he says, I come because every patient is a miracle. They're walking around either blind or in a fog. They can't see through this hazy lens. And then I remove it. And they suddenly see what they haven't been seeing That's exactly what God begins to do for you in your life. Causes you begin to see what you haven't seen, knowledge. Once you have knowledge, now you realize, ooh, that's not good. Ooh, that is good. And now I need self-control. Self-control was something really important in the Greek world. The Stoics prided themselves in their self-control. Well, you know, Scripture isn't so much about you control, but the power of God helping you to have self-control, but it is an important thing in Scripture. It's a fruit of the Spirit, did you know? So when the Spirit begins to fill you, not only do you get signs and wonders and visions and all the good stuff, all the toys, but he comes and begins to give you self-control. Probably the greatest need in the modern church today, self-control. Because our culture has told us, if you feel it, then do it. If you think it, then say it. If you want it, buy it. So the culture just keeps teaching us all these things. But did you know to keep your freedom, to protect your freedom, You and I have to learn to control the parts of us that want to destroy our freedom. So self-control is big, but I can't get anyone to buy it. I've thought about having a conference here at North Coast Calvary on self-control. 
and marketing it through social media with all our partners around the world. Come one, come all. We are gonna learn self-control. You think they're gonna come? No, because it's like, who wakes up wanting that? But it's the, it's the biggest need that we have. Through self-control, we begin to change and we begin to not be who we used to be in all kinds of areas of our lives. Last night was the uh, Encinitas parade, and I wasn't there. I was here at church, but I understand there was one horse in that parade. It's kind of a homespun uh, community parade, but you know the big one's coming, the Rose Bowl parade. And, and the Rose Parade, which I've been to multiple times, uh, it has fabulous horses. Have you ever thought about these horses? That just, I don't know how you imitate a horse on stage, but you know, they, they, they strut and, and they hold their head up high and you know, it just seems like the, the, the master doesn't even have to hold the neck, they just wanna do it. And think about the distractions. Horses untrained can be pretty dumb. And they can be frightened by a lot of different things. We've at a parade, city parade, we've got sirens going off. We've got uh, signals, blue, green, no, not blue. We've got green, red, (laughs) yellow. Uh, We've got uh, bands playing. We've got drum majorettes going on. And then we have all the clowns on the sides of the streets with balloons and selling this and people cheering and whistling going on. And then we have an occasional float breaking down and we have a, a tow truck coming by to embarrassingly draw that float all the way through the rest of the parade. And the horse just keeps going on. <laughs> to me, that's a picture of self-control. Finally, that I'm not reacting to this and reacting to that and need that and gotta go get that and everything. I'm learning to live as God created me to be. We're gonna study a word in just a minute called godliness, but the Bible says, Godliness plus contentment, very similar to self-control, equals great gain. Oh, there's some heavy algebra. Godliness plus contentment, self-control, equals great gain. The third one is perseverance. And this is a fun word, even though it's not fun to go through. Someone asked me, what are you learning these days? I said, perseverance. I don't like, you know, everything is just like, are we done yet? (laughs) Have we learned patience yet? Well, perseverance is a Greek word that you should know. It's hupomane. Can you say that? Hupomane. Made up of two words. Hupo means under. Mane, the the infinitive is manain, which means to abide. And it means to abide under the pressure. Yeah. So, hupomane is staying in the pocket under the pressure. It's a big deal in football. Great football games going on yesterday, by the way. If you didn't see them, sorry. (laughs) Maybe next year. But the pocket is where the quarterback has to remain. And it's really hard 
for some of the Doug Fluties of the world who are small like me to learn, okay, the whole world's caving in on me with linebackers, and I've, I am a scrambler, and I'm used to scrambling and trusting my own instincts, but I gotta learn to trust my line that they're gonna protect me most of the time. <laughs> and when they don't, it's disaster, but nevertheless, to remain in the pocket. Hupomane, persevere, hang in there. So perseverance is related to self-control. It's just self-control still going on. You want to give up. You feel like you can't do anything else, and you're still abiding under the pressure. Pressure is how diamonds are formed. You know that. Carbon under pressure for a long period of time. Paul says in Romans 5, it's how character is formed in you. Transformation through perseverance. So it's critical that we learn to persevere. Plutarch, the ancient philosopher, Greek philosopher, said character is simply a long habit continued. So you and I, in, in those critical times, those tough times, wherever your, whatever your tough trial happens to be, and we all have them, God is using it to change you. And then the fourth leg of the stool is godliness. And godliness is a lifestyle of saying yes to God. Isn't that a great definition? I just made it up. <laughs> godliness is a lifestyle of saying yes to God. So it's, it's obeying God, responding to him vertically and then horizontally, and that's a godly person. It's different than a pious person who acts like they're godly. The Pharisees, that would be what Paul says, having the form of godliness and denying the power. But for you to be godly, what does that mean? You know, there's a lot of things that go into being a godly person. Yes, it's, it's studying the word. Yes, it's learning to talk to God in prayer. These spiritual disciplines that we talked about, they're, they're necessary for me to grow in godliness. But then when he asked me to do something outwardly for someone else, that's, that's my godly moment to respond in that way. So these four things, I believe, lead to a good you, right? The good you, you're shaking your head, yes, you're getting it. So then Peter adds two more virtues. We have goodness and we have uh, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, and godliness. And now stacked on top of godliness, if you can look at this chair for a moment, uh, is brotherly kindness. Your translation may have mutual affection. I'm not a fan of that trans, I don't know what mutual affection. 
I like you, do you like me? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just kind of have a mutual liking each other, an affectionate club. That's, the word is Philadelphia. Pretty cool name, huh? City of brotherly love. It's phileo. It's brotherly family love. So there's a lot of things in families that uh, we learn to do because we love each other. One of the things we do in families is we defend each other. Hey, back off. He's my bro. Um, We listen to each other. We, we pay attention to each other, and we don't gossip about each other or slander each other because it's, it's just our family. This is our stuff. So he says that we need to grow and learn to love each other that way. Isn't that beautiful? That you and I are a part of a family, and we're learning to love each other that way. Someone was just in the courtyard uh, pouring their heart out to me between the service, and me and... Uh, Nick, we're listening, and I said, hey, you know, how about this and this? Because you're family. We want to we back each other up. So brotherly kindness, brotherly love. John says, if anyone says, I love God, yet he does not love his brother, how can the love of God be in him? So it's an important thing to learn. And then the final attribute is love, and you guessed it, it's the word agape. It's verb form, agapao, and, and it refers to this unique, special kind of love. You know, there were four year, words used in the ancient world for love, and uh, C.S. Lewis documents it in his little book, The Four Loves. But one is storge, one, that's... Uh, Uh, nostalgic love, I love my dog, I love the fireplace, I love eggnog, that's that's storge. Um, And then there's phileo, brotherly love, there's eros, erotic love, romantic love, and then there's agape. And agapao was a word that was rarely used in the ancient world. Um, Sometimes it was inserted kind of as a synonym for other loves, but it didn't have any special meaning. So because it was a word that wasn't used very often, the Christians increasingly started using it to describe this unique love that we had discovered from God. And you can see it in the New Testament, how it begins to be used more and more and more. And here Peter uses that word. It describes a love that is not earned It is not deserved. You you are not loved because you're cute. You're not loved because you're smart. You're not loved because you're adorable or because you performed well. You're loved because God is love. So all the pressure's off of you. You know, no monkey grinder with the, the monkey doing all these tricks. The pressure's off of you. And now we love back out of honesty because... God has loved us. And this is the ultimate character that we get to grow in. Agape. Loving people the way we have been loved by God. Whoa. Think of that. It's hard love. It's sacrificial love. It's the love we celebrate this time of year. For God 
so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's incarnation love where you and I decide to forgive even though they didn't forgive me. We decide to be merciful even though they weren't merciful to me. It's the toughest kind of love. But God calls us to that love. And as we step into that moment, guess what? We not only love other people, but it changes us. And we say something one day to Jesus, but when did we see you thirsty? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you in prison? Jesus says, inasmuch as you did it to them, you did it unto me. I was there in that moment, and it transforms you as you step into this character called agape. So Peter ends this passage in verse eight to say, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from becoming, being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your conversion is not ineffective. It's still there, but I want my conversion to be effective while I'm here on earth. Then he says, hey, here it is. Very practical. Now, when I teach on this, business people get it. Because business people don't say, you know, it really doesn't matter whether we're in the black or the red. It really doesn't matter. As long as we're having a good time, you know, that's not business. Sports people doesn't say, it really doesn't matter whether we're winning and losing. As long as we're playing on the field and having it good, that's not sports. It, you know, if you were skydiving, it really doesn't matter. Whether we have shoots on or off, it doesn't matter. Whether we jump or whether we just fly around, as long as we're skydiving in our hearts, then, you know, it, it just... But we do that in Christianity. It's kind of la-la land. But Peter takes us down to bedrock here, and he says, no, it can happen. Change can happen in you and me. And I think this is amazing. So he says, now it's up to you. God has given you everything to drink of the divine nature, and now here they are, these seven things. Isaac Newton said this, everything continues in a state of rest unless it is compelled to change by forces impressed upon it. So hopefully this series has been a force upon you that to not stay in a static place of unchanged, but to say, whoa. And for me, closing thought, the biggest thing that rocks my world is the love of God. You know the story, the story of the prodigal son have you ever thought about the day after the party? You know, the prodigal son comes back, he's received, he's forgiven, the robe's put on him, they have a feast, and then Monday morning comes. <laughs> what is that like? I can tell you what it's like. The prodigal son, the day after, is Mr. Responsible. <laughs> He's saying, yes, sir, dad. We're gonna get on that right away. We're gonna take care of that, dad, because he's been impacted with the love, the agape of his dad. 
And Christmas and Easter, you and I have been impacted with the love of God. And now Peter says, make every effort. Become that responsible son or daughter that's responding to the love of God and letting God work in your life. Let's pray. Lord, we pray thanking you for your faithfulness in our lives. We thank you for your love. And we thank you for this great truth of transformation. And God, we pray for all of us that the power of the Holy Spirit would be so working in our bodies that we would see you change every area of our lives. And we invite you, like the dentist, to come and begin to meddle in our lives, to begin to change us from one degree of glory to the next. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.